Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And uh, welcome back. Where have you been? Or more particularly, where have I been? Um, about two months now since we last had a podcast, a lot of things been going on, and I've got some great stories to share with you. I've been off on my wild travels, uh, collecting boats, crossing oceans, all the things you'd expect. And now I wanted to go ahead and tell you about uh, the ins and outs of it, how it went down. It was not exactly what I was expecting, um, but we got a good outcome in the end. Although, by goodness, we had to work for it. So this week I'll be finding out what I've been up to and we've got some exciting uh, some exciting things develop out of this news because I went and picked up a new boat from Europe, which we have now here available in North America and for the uh, Ocean Globe Race training that we're going to be doing going into 2022. So where did it all start? Well, you may recall that I was getting pretty excited about the Veterans Sailing Project, and that's really where it all begins. Um, I had an idea that some of the various different forces in my life might best be combined by starting to create a veteran sailing program. The initial seed of the idea came to me from a guy called Michael Upchurch, who represents now the Spartan Sailing Foundation in the US. They're out actively looking for funds for this. Um, but here on the ground in Nova Scotia, I knew that if I was going to be able to um, live up to the potential of Michael's idea and the greater kind of um, uh, a series of things that I wanted to achieve, I was going to need to move pretty fast. And so the emphasis with me was to get Spartan up and running as best as it could be, obviously having gone through some very difficult times in 2020 and the beginning of 2021. Spartan not really in its best uh, format to be uh, going ahead and starting a around the world campaign for veterans. So at the moment, uh, or should I say, let's let's uh, let's put it all in perspective. As it was back at um, July of this year, Spartan was in a situation where the boat that we've used the most over the last couple of years is Challenger. Challenger, it was kind of like a game of musical chairs. Uh, when um, COVID came around and hit, it was wherever you are, that's the music stopped, you got to stay there. So Challenger ended up in the boatyard in uh, Alicante in Spain. And she was just at a point where she was having some repair uh, fixed. Uh, the interior of the bow, we cracked uh, two frames uh, doing the Middle Sea race. Um, we had identified that the design as it was put together in 1996, 1997 for that boat had quite tight turns to the framing inside the bow where the hull sides meet the deck where now perhaps you'd see a big uh, a, a lot of mass a lot of material sitting in that uh, that upper corner underneath the car lines uh, underneath the deck um, with a nice rounded radius um, the way that the boat had been designed which was super super light with minimal material there was hardly any material up in that hull deck joint area and the radius was quite tight on what was there and that had led to the boat um, having gone through some very heavy weather in the Mediterranean for the uh, middle sea race uh, cracking those frames so no problem new frames time to get on with that and get that uh, modified and developed one thing with Challenger that's always struck me is that because of her particular story in the Whitbread race she ended up getting left with a kind of uh, a series of like congenital uh, faults, which we've slowly worked our way through over the last couple of years. Let me put that in perspective. She was um, she was built for the 1997 Whitbread race uh, and was completed quite close to the start of the race. Uh, it was all hush-hush and undercover 
went over to the UK, had a new rig put in, and then was sent off down the Atlantic on the first leg of the of the Whitbread race. Um, she showed some speed, nothing particularly amazing, but the thing which then really catapulted her into the news at the time is that when she got to Cape Town, it was realised that the uh, agents who had been dealing with the sponsorship had stolen the money and that unfortunately there was no money left to continue with what had been a very um, high, highly visible uh, campaign with uh, Russ Fields and the guys from Yamaha who had won the 1993 race. Suddenly, no money, no onwards campaign. So the boat itself then was shipped back to America. Um, it was shipped across America. It was modified for uh, light-handed racing, for, for double-handed racing. And then it was uh, involved in the, I think it was a 2001 Transpac. I went out to Hawaii, came back. And then apart from it being in the Newport Ensenada race, which is just a couple of hundred miles, so basically nothing for 15 years until I purchased her in 2015. So where other boats would have set off down the Atlantic doing the Whitbread race and then developed oh yeah okay we need to we need to change this we need to toughen that up we need to change the diameter of this we need to you know make alterations to boat make the boats tougher as they were going along this boat never had that it was just designed uh, built and put onto the water and that was it so it left it with some odd things not least the fact that the pulpit and push pit were both aluminum that the radar bracket was aluminum that the stanchions and the stanchion bases were aluminum <laughs> and these things over time have also all of course started to show their weakness aluminum is a fantastic material to use in all sorts of elements of construction on board a boat but when it comes down to things that need to be strong um the pulpit push pit the radar bracket those things do not want to be made of uh, aluminum certainly not when your staysail drags across the front of your radar during some maneuvers so um, they all broke over time now we're getting down where we've uh, we've also on that boat of course had the uh, the keel uh, um, uh, completely replaced on that boat so that happened in 2018 all brand new keel bolts um, brand new keel put onto it and that was because we found crevice corrosion at the bottom of the keel plate where it meets the the bulb of the um, of the the keel itself where the lead is 7800 kilos of lead at the bottom so um, things have been changed and replaced over time obviously as an aside about the keel um, the the underlying principle there the underlying problem there seems to have been that um, the boat was left in the Caribbean for uh, a, a I guess like four months, December, January, February, March, um, between the end of the ARC race and the start of the Caribbean season in late February. And uh, and then through the, the Caribbean season until she departed on the Antigua Bermuda race. And during that period of time, wherever she was sitting, um, there seems to have been stray electricity in the marina, always something to be very cautious of. Um, and Challenger and one other boat from the American Northeast suffered very large damage whilst in that marina, which was a whole mess of legalities, as you can imagine. But it came down to, in the end, a 70000 US dollar job to replace the keel on that boat. So we've had big works we've had to do to her. We've had her checked and checked and checked all the way through to make sure that there's nothing more structural that needs to be looked at on her. But She's got a clean bill of health now. She's uh, um, in a position now where we want to start refitting her ahead of uh, uh, new adventures. But um, at the end of uh, 2020, 
she was in this boatyard in Alicante. So she's sitting there, okay, she's the one that takes 14 people and has done so many miles. The other boat is Falcon, and that's here. It's in Nova Scotia. Um, yes, absolutely, you can go sailing, but you can only ever take a very few people with you because it's a boat set up for solo sailing. There's only four bunks inside, uh, one for the uh, for the captain or the watch uh, leader. And so really you're pushing it to have even eight people on the boat. So what we needed to do was to jet into this new project, this new campaign, the veteran sailing campaign, and we needed to do it by getting into uh, some new boats. And I was very lucky that I had a group of people around me who understood the nature of what I was trying to move towards and were able to put financing specifically for boats in place so that we could make these things happen. It's easy to prove the business case for what Spartan's been doing because we've been operating for uh, five years. Uh, COVID was an extreme black swan event within uh, our industry and uh, and across the world, of course, but the business model still exists, although, of course, it may be kicking back into gear in 2022, uh, not 2021, as some, some people believed. I didn't think that was ever going to work out. I wasn't even quite sure about the Fastnet, to be absolutely honest, but luckily it seems to have had a, uh, a nice uh, run this year. So, we had the ideas. I'd finally got my own sort of ideas into focus. You know, I started out as an outward bound instructor and uh, very much sail training is at the heart of everything I do. Yes, I do do racing. Yes, I do do long distance stuff and solo stuff. But my greatest pleasure is when I'm on a boat and those around me are struggling to overcome the the environment struggling to overcome the challenge and then they start to get a kind of foot up on it and then they know what's happening and then they start to kind of master what's happening around them and then they start to develop new skills and new kind of perspectives and and get a new uh, understanding of what it is to be involved in a team and a new perspective on their own abilities and their own confidence starts to grow that's the best thing it's often a kind of tumultuous um, experience to go through there's uh, it, you know it's team building at the very basic it's uh, forming storming norming performing that's what happens when we go and do these things and I think that anybody that's sailed to me doing Spartan or certainly on any longer ver uh, voyages in the last couple of years will know that that's kind of what I'm always driving towards I'll always compromise speed to make sure that people are safe that people are safe emotionally physically and um that's that's what this veteran sailing program is uh, is all about. I'm really hoping that as we move forward, the very best of what Spartan can be, uh, coupled with the unique needs of, uh, of of veterans as they move out of the service and start to um, face the the transitional gap between service life and everyday life. I think sail training is a perfect. Uh, platform to drop in there and uh, give people a really uh, brilliant new understanding of, uh, of themselves and teamwork and what they can achieve. So that was the challenge that was put in front of me. Um, the middle of uh, 2021 was the point at which we were finally able to pull the trigger and set off out of Nova Scotia. Of course, COVID had kept all of the um, borders uh, 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 basically impenetrable. You couldn't, couldn't really couldn't really get out of Canada and back in, couldn't get into Portugal and back out. It was very complicated. And I guess it's worth saying now, as we go into this story, um, we observed uh, each 
country's laws. We observed personal distancing. We observed um, vaccination and PCR testing requirements. We did everything that was required um, in every country we went to, both myself and all the other members of the crew. And we were um, checked and double checked and triple checked by the authorities that we, we passed through to make sure everything we were doing was safe and legal. So if I don't mention that overtly as I'm going along, it's merely that I'm forgetting it, not that uh, we didn't do it. So I set off uh, full of excitement at the uh, 24th of July, um, heading towards uh the, towards Europe and towards a the first of the deals that I was going to do on these boats and the the deals so to speak was the fact that um, a lot of people were keen to see this um, program get into uh, become reality and get into gear and so I had started off first with the idea of going getting Longobarda and if you have not seen already on the YouTube channel there is a nice walkthrough of Longobarda which I did it's um, about 20 minutes long on deck and below giving you a look around that was where I was going that was the first deal that I'd worked out I'd um, talked it through with the owner we had a deal in place and everything was looking like it was going to be uh, tickety-boo as I got to Toronto I live in Nova Scotia so first I flew from Halifax got to Toronto and I'd literally just got the uh, okay from the, uh, the the ground crew at the gate that indeed I had all the right paperwork and I was legally able to travel through the COVID restrictions, travel from Canada, travel to uh, England and then on to Portugal. And so the first big success had been reached, which was, yes, we can go, we can do this, this can happen. And uh, that was the moment which I got a text message saying that the financing had fallen through and now I was <laughs> getting onto a plane with a one-way ticket to, um, to Portugal and uh, there was no money. So that was not great, as you can imagine. I'm, I've got my pictures from the trip uh, here on the computer in front of me and uh, I can see some um, pictures of uh, kind of night time and the sun just coming up uh, in the morning. I remember how I felt at that point as we started to fly over the fields and forests of the UK, which obviously well known to me. That's where I'm from. I've traveled in out of the UK for, for many years now and just thinking, what on earth am I going to do here? I've got this big plan. We've got this great idea of, uh, of being able to help those who need it um, with with Spartan's work. And suddenly at the very first um, very first hurdle, I've fallen down. So I instead of staying in the UK for just a number of hours and passing through on another flight to, to Portimao in Portugal, I got to a hotel room, sat down and started to connect with all the people who I'd been working with over a number of months to try to bring this together. And we had at that time a bit of a kind of uh, shopping list of how we're going to do this. The first uh, boat we're going to get was Longobarda. And Longobarda, although she's had her interior moved a long way away from the racing interior that she would have had in the late 80s when she was built and early 90s when she primarily raced, um, the interior is is kind of more like a, a charter interior now. It's got uh, tables and chairs and down lighters and TVs and aircon, all that kind of stuff. Uh, although that is not particularly suited to going around the world, um, the the boat itself offers a kind of set of 
logistical solutions for a lot of things which we knew the other boats would require, i.e. big race boats, maxis, if they are pretty close to original, they don't have any anchoring gear. They don't have any cleats. They don't have any fair leads. They don't have anything like that. And so if you want to put an anchor down, you have to go down into the forepeak and get your big aluminum fortress anchor and then shackle it onto chain and mouse it. And then you have to get that over the side of the boat and kind of set up with some way of quickly letting it go. You can't just let it run over the side or she'll knacker up your paint, knacker up your, your, your Kevlar and your filler on the, on the um, edges there. So you've got to have it worked out, which is normally kind of like slinging it between uh, intermittent stops on the on the lifelines with uh, with uh, quick releases and then people standing there to let the quick releases go. <laughs> like it's very complicated to get an anchor over the side of a, a big race boat that's not designed for anchoring. So um, Longobarda had big or has big um, uh, windlasses and anchoring gear and it's like okay so she can go ahead and she can put her anchor down and then other boats can can tie on side on the sides of her when she's in the Caribbean when she's all the different places because obviously as you can imagine birthing these enormous boats is incredibly expensive and at the end of the day Spartan is a business and we're trying to cut down on overheads not um not just buy loads of boat and then discover, oh yeah, hey, we've got 200 foot of boat that needs parking for the night. So we're trying to think about like sensible solutions. Longobarda has a lot of um, uh, space for, for storing things, for storing equipment. So you don't have to store it on board your, um, your boats. Remember, we're going to be doing a lot of racing from a, a fixed location, like something like Antigua. Um, do we have a workshop on board each boat with tools on board each boat? Obviously, they've got to have the minimum. But if you've got one boat which you're sacrificing um, its performance and putting more weight and having it set up as a workshop, then you don't have to have those things on the other boats. The other thing I was bearing in mind is that my experience to date is that for those uh, crew who come and work for me in, a, in paid positions, sitting in the Caribbean uh, on board a race boat with no air conditioning is great for about the first week. And then the reality of it um, starts to dawn. And unless you're a very particular breed who don't mind it and, and still think it's cool, um, it very quickly people start to look around and look for what's better than this. And of course, you're sitting in the uh, the Caribbean, there's these soup yachts all around, like that, of course, becomes the thing to do. So Longobarda was the first boat on the shopping list because she brought that logistical sort of infrastructure to what was going on. But in terms of being a boat to go around the world, I had talked to the Ocean Globe Race Race Committee. They were willing for Longobarda to be entered into the race. She was not in the original Whitbread, which is kind of like a an important eligibility check for boats entering the race but she was of the era she was redesigned for sailing around the world she was meant to be in the event um and so they said well we're, we're happy for her to to come in as long as you can populate the rest of this uh, class with with boats that can race alongside her so um a good boat in some ways um a beautiful boat uh and and a, and a very much a um uh uh, well, I'm still crying. She had a bow thruster, man. It had been my first boat ever with a bow thruster. She had a fridge. I've still yet, never yet crossed the Atlantic with a fridge. I've 30 times now, still never crossed with a fridge. She had a lot of things which were aspirational for the company, um, and I was very excited to get her. Um, but there were other boats on the list, and we'll hear more about those later on. So we can introduce the idea now that certainly a very large and complicated seven-month plan for getting these boats together had at the first hurdle fallen down, but there was other people and other ideas and other things going on behind the scenes which are hopefully able to come to the rescue. So I kind of 
dug in in the uh, in the hotel and over two days managed to broker a new deal um, for the same boat for Longobarda and um, thought we are on a winner here. So boarded the flight from London Gatwick and flew down first to Faro in Portugal and then drove from Faro down to Portimao. And although that seems like that's uh, pretty much, you know, what else is there to say? I can tell you that's just getting going. Then things started to get complicated. So before we get into what went wrong, uh, let's uh, what went right. Uh, going and buying a boat, they say there's two happy days in the lifespan of a boat or certainly the owner's experience of a boat, which is the first day when you buy it and the last day when you sell it. If, if you end up in the, those, those bracketed areas and, and never have any pleasure anywhere else in your sailing career, then of course you're doing it wrong. But it's, uh, it's good to enjoy those moments uh, one is the start of all new things and the other is uh, is the end of something and a, and a period of reflection and hopefully the start of, of something else. So I was very excited to be in one of the high spots of boat ownership, the point, the point where you go and see it for the first time and you step on board and you start looking around and getting a feel for what's right and what's wrong. And um, the, the introduction to that moment was almost perfect. I ended up staying at the uh, hotel right there next to the marina in Portimao. It's called the Portimao Marina Hotel. It's uh, the Tivoli. And um, due to prices uh, being slashed during uh, COVID, what was quite a fancy hotel suddenly came into the kind of bracket I would have expected of a little B&B somewhere. So that was quite um, uh, an easy kind of uh, thing to make a choice about where we're going to stay. We're going to stay at the hotel that's right next to the boat. And that meant that for the first morning I went down for breakfast, um, the, the, the lawn, the, the grassy area, whatever you might call it, which is at the bottom of the, the, the restaurant's uh, open area of the hotel, um, it ran right up to the back of the boat. So I'm sitting, having my breakfast, having successfully traveled uh, between continents during COVID, having successfully renegotiated the finance, and I'm sitting at the back of the boat, looking at it, thinking, my God, this is quite incredible. Now, the good thing was that I had already had quite a lot of interaction with this boat and with her owner um, a couple of years before, when the owner was looking to make her more saleable and more useful for the kind of sailing that he wanted to do. And he had taken a decision, which I thought was a very intelligent decision, to to cut down the mast. Now, uh, a boat like, um, like Longobarda, when it was first built, would have something like a 35 to 38 meter mast. So you're well over 100 feet here, 110, 120 feet of mast. Um, and the upper sections of it are above the force stay. So it's a fractionally rigged boat. It's got inline spreaders. They're exactly in line with the beam of the boat. No, no aft sweep on them. So that means you can bend the rig by uh, by pulling at the top of the mast and uh, and uh, with a hydraulic system or with a, a purchase system of rope, um, bend the mast down towards the back of the boat because it's held by the forestay at the seven eighths position uh, up the front edge of the mast. The section of the mast lower than the forestay starts to bend forward to to take up the uh, a new shape which you're imparting to it by pulling at the top of the rig. This is why we have inline spreaders, fractional rigs. So you can bend the mast and flatten out the material of the mainsail. So you get a flatter, harder aerofoil shape, which is better for going faster. So um, that's great. But when it comes to just sailing the boat and kind of, you know, normal kind of basic sailing, 
you don't really want that. That's a fantastic aspect of the performance characteristics of the boat, but you don't really want to uh, have to deal with a 38 meter mast with full running backstays when you're just trying to cruise and just trying to sail. And we've already dealt with this a lot with Challenger because we've done modifications to Challenger, which means that if we're sailing with a trainee team, what we can do is put a, a reef in the in the mainsail, put the first reef in, and then put on basically a permanent backstay that runs from the top of the mast, clears the top of the now reefed mainsail, comes right down to the back of the deck, uh, onto the back deck rather. And that means that in the event of um, tacking or jiving the boat with people who are somewhat new to it, you, there's not as much pressure on everybody to deal with the backstays. The backstays are there to provide a lot of tension for the forestay. Of course, they're there to help hold the mast up. Of course, they are going to go on, but if there's an extra 30 seconds delay during the tack, it's not the end of the world. Getting into uh, training situations, we start to realize that people's emotional safety is just as important as the performance of the boat, if not a lot more so. And um, it's better to compromise on the performance and then have a better sailing experience. So this is what the owner of Longobarda was going for. And so a decision was made uh, about three years now to cut the top of the mast off. So it took this five spreader rig and made it a four spreader rig um, and shed, I think, seven meters off the top of the mast. But what it ended up with was a masthead rig. So the forestay comes up to the top of the mast and the backstay goes down from the the, the back edge of the mast and down to the back deck. So much more stable, much more easy to operate a rig. And I was very excited to, to be getting involved in it. It had the rig uh, uh, newly painted. It had new paint on the hull. It had the decks very recently, new, new paint on them. And um, it had a lot of attributes which would make it really perfect for this kind of mothership thing that we were looking for, for the veterans around uh, the world campaign. So sitting there at the restaurant, looking at the back of the boat, which I'm soon gonna go and have a look around with a uh, yacht broker, I was pretty excited. So first thing I had to do is go and get my cousin, Mike, from the airport. Mike had decided to uh, help me out on this one. Um, he's not particularly a sailor, but he was down uh, with me in the uh, last days of um, 2019, is that right? No, 2020, sorry, he was with me 2020. He came for four weeks here to the house in Nova Scotia, and uh, although new to, to this kind of sailing, um, jumped in and got involved in a lot of the uh, engineering and learned all about the winches and the the, the grinders and the, the ballast systems and so many very specific areas of the boat that I knew that those skills would be super useful on board the boat and that he'd finally get the opportunity to go and uh, and sail these boats and see what it was all about. He'd done a lot of kind of working with the boat alongside and never sailed the thing. So this was an opportunity to balance that up. So all vaccinated, all papers in place. Mike arrived in Faro and we drove back down to the boat and then it was time to go and have a look around. And she did not disappoint. It was fantastic. It's the kind of boat where you have to go up a stepladder to get onto the boat because the, um, the freeboard is so high. Um, but wide open decks, very, very wide boat. You're looking at sort of six and a half meters, like 21 foot wide, um, a nice taper towards the stern, which I quite like in a boat that's being used for sail training because it means the, the motion of the boat is a lot easier. I do like those like late 90s, uh, 90s, uh, sorry, late 80s and 90s designs of boats where they hadn't kind of gone fully square. Remember even the Volvo 70s that came out in 2001, like Ericsson 1, started quite a taper to the stern of them 
they hadn't gone fully square and wide. Those boats are brilliant for, for, for blast reaching and for power off the wind, but going upwind, they, they can be quite... Um, quite hard on the software on the people that are on board um, because they as a wave comes under the stern of the boat she's heeled over beating to windward as that wave comes under the stern there's no um, there's no pressure release from the form of the vessel the vessel does not taper it just holds its shape and that means the wave continues to stay compressed under the back of the boat and which tends to rock the boat uh, pitch the boat down slam the way the the, the bow into the next wave so um, square boats great for speed not great for going upwind and not great for sail training so longo had exactly the right kind of shape single rudder big rudder eight foot rudder but um, again for the sail training that we do for the kind of work that we do um, dagger boards and twin rudders are not protected by the keel at the end of the day the keel is a giant chunk of metal hanging down under the boat and if you want to protect appendages from uh, things they may come up against in the ocean, uh, a giant chunk of metal is a good way of doing it. So if the only appendage you have is a rudder, which is in line directly behind the keel, it's very unlikely you're going to get the, the rudder damaged, where, of course, a daggerboard or dual rudders, it's very easy to run over something and then, well, bankrupt your company and uh, and completely uh, uh, price yourself out in the market for a while as you try and get on top of replacing a daggerboard or a, uh, a rudder on one of these kind of boats. So exactly the configuration I was looking for. Um, Longobarda had been operated by a guy called Mike Slater, who's a very well-known figure in, uh, in sailing, and uh, no, no cost had been spared. In fact, during her entire lifetime, no cost had been spared on this boat. So she'd had a life where she was a full-on um, prolific racer in the 1990s, winning almost everything for a couple of years. Very well-known, she had a, a rounded um, uh, prow, which was very noticeable as she came out through the start lines uh, with, with other boats. You could always tell which one was longer. Um, and I should say also that Maxi Racing, what is a maxi? I didn't, I didn't say that. Um, maxi is basically any boat over 70 foot. I actually learned this uh, literally in the last couple of months. It was all this. I always know what a maxi is. I can point a boat and say that's a maxi, but I'd never really worked out. Is it because they raced in the maxis? Is it because of the size? Is it because of, well, it's because they're bigger than 70 foot. So anything over 70 foot, we can call it a maxi. So um, these maxis, incredibly strongly built boats. Many of them built a Kevlar, which is useful if you're doing the kind of stuff I'm doing where, again, um, their toughness is almost just as important as the as the design of the boat. Being able to have a beautiful boat that has longevity baked into it is, um, I think, a lot better than having one which is a real trailer princess and can't be taken out to, apart from on good days. The carbon fiber boats, uh, we have uh, Falcon. Literally, if you punch the side of the hull hard, you put a dent in the side of it. That's how thin the, the, the scrim of, um, of carbon is on the outside of the foam. And then there's another one on the inside. Granted, if you punch the bottom of the boat, it's going to be a lot harder. It's like an inch thick monolithic carbon. But um, for these uh, maxis, uh, Kevlar was still in use uh, and, and it's into fantastically good material as long as you don't let it get wet. Um, it, Kevlar is a little bit like um, Mogwai. Remember the little um, crooning, whistling creature at the beginning of Gremlins? What was the rules? You, you, you can't get it wet and you can't feed it after midnight. Well, you can feed Kevlar anytime after midnight. It's not an issue. But the problem with it getting wet is that um, water is a plasticizer for Kevlar. So if Kevlar stays wet for too long, it actually starts to change its chemical composition. It becomes not as strong as it was, which is not exactly the characteristic you want of, um, of a boat hull. So 
I remember having this uh, spelt out to me. I was in uh, Newport Marina a couple of years ago and a chap came down the dock and starts chatting to me about the boat and getting all the details, which is not that common. And um, uh, he asked me what it was made of. And I said, well, she's made of Kevlar. And he said, no, I, I don't think it's made of Kevlar. I'm sure it's got Kevlar in it, but it, it won't be built of Kevlar. I said, no, it's, it's definitely Kevlar. He said, well, son, I'm I got to tell you, I know quite a lot about Kevlar. I don't think they build boats out there. I said, well, if you want to step on board and come and look inside, you can clearly see that it's all made of Kevlar because it has this very distinctive kind of yellowy color. Bless my soul, he said, it's made of Kevlar. And that's when he revealed that he had been um, the agent for DuPont, uh, who manufactured Kevlar for, for decades in the American Northeast. So safe to say that he got off my boat, walked back down the dock and got onto his tri-deck motor yacht, which was his uh, his version of being at the marina. But um, he explained to me that, um, yeah, Kevlar, uh, you know, you have to be very cautious. If you've got a boat hull that's made from it, you really need to be careful with your paint, with your um, bottom coatings, with joints, all that kind of stuff. So um, I don't know if there's any boats now that are built of Kevlar. I know that Southern Wind, when I visited their yard in South Africa, they had um, replacement bows for all their boats stacked up in the yard. They, I think when they build a boat or certainly a series of boats, they have spare bows for them. So a, a, a drop of the hats, you can have a new bow uh, flown out to how, how wonderful that would be. But um, they're all Kevlar sitting there. So um, I don't know if there's any Kevlar boats now. I'd be interested to hear if you've got any information on that. But um, certainly in the 90s, it was it was a good thing. And having um, dusted a few of these boats up against the dock, having seen them pressing up against the dock in very heavy winds, um, I would definitely take it. So you can see how, you know, she's got all the things that we need. Um, but and she's got this this like logistical infrastructure kind of feeling going on. So I'm getting very excited about this boat. We go inside. It's got um, three cabins forwards, kind of like a master cabin with its own ensuite, and then two double bunk cabins um, with a, a head that they share, a door that seals all of that off from the main salon. The main salon, it's. You know, the inside of this boat is not like super fancy at all. It's kind of like, I'd say like clipper fancy. If you've ever seen the interior of the clipper boats, it's made with a lot of plywood. It's made with simple shapes, simple um, cushions, but it's rugged. It's tough. It's clean. It's, um, you know, I, I like it as a look. And certainly as someone who's running a, uh, a charter company, that's exactly what you want. It looks good, but ultimately is pretty simple. If someone um, spills red wine, the worst you're going to have to do is, you know, maybe sand something and repaint it. It's not going to be infused into your mahogany trim or something. So uh, looking good from my point of view, um, big galley, big um, area where the, uh, the the navigation could happen and, and crew bunks behind that. So if you have a look at the video on YouTube, it's called A Tour of Longabada, and um, it's a lovely boat. It's a lovely boat. I was very excited about it, and I was, I was very excited about the project moving forward. So everything looked like it was going fine. We had arrived on a Monday, uh, had seen the boat on the Tuesday, had a good look around it on, the I think, the Wednesday for an hour or two. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to um, transfer money into an eScrow account and then get the option to be on board the boat with the money sitting in the account everyone's happy with what's going on and we need to understand what the phrase as is where is which let's face it most boats are as is where is let's understand what that phrase means by inspecting the boat and that's when we got into this like world of pain that then basically went on for another 10 days and this was where we had a marine uh, lawyer, an admiralty lawyer whose only work is to work with boats, boat sales, everything to do with boats, 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 boats. And he was uh, standing by to, to do everything that needed to be done. And the broker's, the broker's contract was just like something school children put together. It was 
such a pity that it it just broke everything apart. Basically, if you're buying a boat, and maybe we can do a podcast about this in the future, but you know, things that you look at when you're doing a boat, we all, because we're into sailing, we get, we want to go on board and we want to check everything out. And has it got this and has it got that? But the legalities, the technicalities, the paperwork is just as important and can trip you up in a, in a much more fundamental way than discovering that, oh, you know, it's got the wrong anchor pattern or it's got the wrong kind of navel pipe or whatever the hell it is that little detail that catches your eye um and the paperwork on this one was the killer and it was just that once you've once you've um connected with a yacht broker about a boat it you the, the contract is made at that point that's the person that's helping you go through the process i've worked in um yacht brokerage and it's very simple it's a a moral a moral situation where okay i made contact with you you're my guy this is how you make your money you list the boat you show the boat now i'm working with you people do try and get unscrupulous and try and dodge around so they avoid the 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 percentages which the um yacht broker is going to take um i didn't want to do that this this is our guy this is who we're going with and unfortunately blimey it didn't work out so good so um uh, let me see the the yacht brokers association of america have a contract which is pretty much you know the way most good contracts go it what can we say about it? it's got a lot of a lot of writing on it it's uh, three or four pages long it has a lot of facts on it and it's presented by uh, a yacht broker to both sides in the equation and um, that contract has already gone through the gambit with lawyers so that the wording within it and the balance of risk and responsibility is understood and is agreed upon by legal minds so when you then start to get into a situation where a one and a half page contract which looks like it's been written on a uh, like a laptop around the back somewhere with all incorrect details on it um, you know things like uh, the engine's horsepower was out by 150 horsepower which is kind of like a you know quite an easy detail to to get a hold of um and then that contract starts being uh, adapted and manipulated by the brokerage house themselves not their lawyers the brokerage house and then when other you know the 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 selling team who again are not lawyers are starting to change things around it starts to get very confusing um the yacht brokers of america association their contract is basically exactly the same as the Asian Yacht Brokers uh, Association's contract. And that's exactly the same as the Mediterranean Yacht Brokers Association's contract because the way that Admiralty law works around the world is all the same. So a high quality contract in one um, uh, geography is going to work in another. And unfortunately, what we're dealing with, one that did not work in any geographies and the lawyer just would not let it pass and we kept changing things and compromising and they would come back and say no 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 oh and it just ended up with like finishing up with you know at we've we're in europe uh the law team are in um uh, the east coast of the us we've got other members of this project in other locations around the world which are like 12 degrees uh, sorry 12 hours out from what i was doing and it just ended up with this massive logistical issue of well not logistical administration a massive administration issue of this bloody contract so basically what i said to mike was we can't just sit in this hotel room it's on like fourth day just sitting in the hotel room where all this lot went backs and forwards we've got to do something so what we had decided to do already was that we were going to go to alicante so from where we were in portimao we were going to drive about five or six hundred kilometers out of portugal crossing the border legally legally with covid um 
into Spain and drive across the Sierra Nevada mountains and then down to Alicante, which is where Challenger was. And I thought, you know, we can go there while they're sorting out all the legal stuff for this uh, contract. We can go and look at Challenger. We can talk to the people at the boatyard. We can pick up a load of equipment that I want to get and things I want to pick up off the boat because I've not seen it for like a year and a half. Come back to Portimao in Portugal and this will all be out the way. So that's the best thing to do. You know, if you're getting stuck and bogged down on something and I could basically continue to oversee what was going on via a phone. It's like, well, is there anything else we can do with our bodies during the day, which is not, you know, sitting looking at a phone and waiting for it to ring. So we got into a little car, which was a VW um, Polo, uh, which ended up being called the Mighty Chicken. Um, it was a tiny little car, tiny little engine, but just served us fantastically as we drove out from... Um, from uh, uh, Portimao across the border and then started to drive out and across Spain. And we had a fantastic time. Mike and I, um, because of the way my family works, we're, we're cousins, but we're actually like 20 years apart. So we didn't really know each other that well. His family is all based in Canada. My family is based in, in the UK that I've traveled for many years. And it's just worked out. We kind of haven't really spent much time together. So it was a great opportunity to get to know Mike a lot better. He's a really fantastic guy and, and, and travel and see things. And um, we had a great time. One of the highlights was that we went to this... Uh, castle we're driving along the highway it's about uh, four o'clock in the afternoon and one thing i've got to say i hate is um my dad was always somebody who wanted to drive like full bore from a to b without stopping like there was some huge prestige in stopping uh, sorry in not stopping that you would you know or we did the whole thing i only did it in four hours like yes but we're all now totally frazzled because we did it also 100 miles an hour and um you know the the atmosphere inside the car is like you're in some kind of racing uh, situation um or you just as a driver you just end up super tired you have like kind of highway sleeps which is clearly not good and uh i just don't get it my style is like just stop like stop every half an hour if you want stop every hour like what what does it possibly matter who we're trying to impress in and my my dad had been a, a semi-truck driver an arctic driver if you're from the uk and so for him in that situation it's totally understandable that uh, he wants to get straight from a to b as fast as he possibly could and um and I kind of understand that, but I see a lot of people and uh, Mike and I were keen not to, to do that. So we stopped at everything we could uh, see and uh, we were driving across the Sierra Nevada mountains, these wide open plains, beautiful flat roads. And away to the right, I see this like castle, like proper castle. And uh, it's like, hey, let's go and have a look at that. So we pulled off the highway and we ended up having this fantastic adventure in this tiny little Spanish town called Calahorra. And... Um, Castillo de Calahorra is, uh, have a look online, um, I'm going to post on my Patreon site a, a video which I put up, I'm going to be introducing this story in pictures and blogs and uh, and videos and what have you on Patreon in the next couple of days. If you haven't already, have a look at that, it's getting much more interesting. When I started the Patreon site, I was... Um, I knew what it was I wanted to do. I wanted to do seamanship training videos. And I did three or four of them. And I just started to realize, A, this is not the production quality I want to see in these kind of videos. So I want them to last for a long time and be relevant for a long time. And um, and it's a huge amount of work. If you've only done any kind of video editing, like just putting together a 15-minute video can be six or seven hours easily. So doing one-hour videos was just killing me. So um, I also, it was getting very, very difficult towards the end of 2020. I ended up that my laptop broke. I didn't have the money to fix it. Like 2020 was very difficult and things got very tight. There was a lot of nights on uh, rice and uh, soy sauce at the end of 2020, I tell you. But um, 
what's happened now in 2021 is that we've partnered with Picnic Studios here in Nova Scotia and Justin and the team there are absolutely fantastic and I think you'll see the difference now in the YouTube videos we're just starting to get a lot going with that we've got a lot in the in the can now we're starting to Justin's much better at kind of like putting things out at a rational rate based on what's in the reserve rather than me and my promises but um they're getting better and the seamanship videos are like between half an hour and an hour. They're over on Patreon. Um, the idea is in the end that they'll be clustered together into a syllabus, which is what we'll be presenting um, to clients of Spartan as something that they can they can purchase if they want to learn more. And if you're doing the round the world stuff, whether it's legs or around the world, you get free access to the entire syllabus, which in the end is going to be like 40 videos and like, and there are they're nearly an hour each so have a look at that if you haven't but onto patreon in the next couple of days to say i'll put this um vlog which i did from outside the castle at kalahora which was very nice um but we were we were pushed back by the fact that you can't get in and uh breaching castles is uh obviously a traditionally difficult <laughs> and me and my flip-flops was uh, no opposition for castillo de kalahora but we did see and managed to translate the fact that on wednesdays between 10 and 12 it's open. So we're like, okay, whatever happens on this trip, we're getting inside this castle and uh, and uh, we will make our way back here if we can from Alicante to be able to take advantage of this of this opportunity to look around inside the thing. It's like, a, I think it's from the 1400s. It was originally uh, a Moorish castle that then has been used for all sorts of different people through time. Beautiful rounded shapes and oh, it was uh, it was a real mystery and we enjoyed uh, like exploring around it. So stayed there for the night drove on the next day and arrived in Alicante. And Alicante, of course, is the um, is the center of the Volvo, what was the Volvo race and is now the Ocean Race. The Volvo Ocean Race Museum is there um, at the little section of the waterfront, which is where the museum is. There are two boats sitting out there, Pirates of the Caribbean, and I'm not sure now off the top of my head which was the other boat that was there. I would have to rack my brain a little bit to pick that one up, but two Volvo 70s sitting there, and it's actually where I went to in 2011 when I was asked to, uh, I was actually asked to do an article by Asia Pacific Boating Magazine, and they, I don't know why, but they, they flew me like business class to Spain, and then fancy hotel and uh, I wrote this article and uh, got to helm uh, Rothmans, the uh, the classic um, uh, Maxi from the from the. Uh, now which race was she in? She was in the eighty nine race, I believe. Um, under oh, I'm trying to think of the skipper's name. Who skippered Rothmans? Come on, do you know Laurie Smith? Is that right, Laurie Smith? I think it was. Um, and uh, I got to I got to skip her for the for the pro am races before the start of the uh, Volvo race in two thousand eleven. So I kind of knew the lay of the land, but I hadn't been back for a very long time. And um, it was great. We got to go down and see uh, Challenger. My God, just so much dust on that boat. She's sitting there now with the keel off, the mast off, the boom off, the rudder off, in pieces. Um, and just you get these Scirocco winds that blow out from the, uh, the, the North Africa in the, uh, well, all seasons of the year. And they just cover everything. If you've, if you've ever worked on a super yacht or any kind of yachting along that coast in, in the uh, Mediterranean, you'll know what I mean. You just wake up one morning and the whole boat is covered in red dust. So obviously she sat there now for like over a year without anybody working on her, just sealed up. 
um, a lot of dust, but um, inside everything great and uh, a really nice dry environment. So no rot, no smells, no anything. And the best thing from my position is that the uh, the boat has been in pieces um, and drying out. That's one thing with Challenger is that under previous ownership, she'd sat in the water from basically 2001 to 2015 with only very brief pullouts every two or three years, I think, to um, to, to get the bottom cleaned off uh, where she was in California. So getting out the water and getting her fully dried off is brilliant news and uh, really excited to uh, get her back together in the in the next uh, little while. Not sure exactly when that's going to work out. And, uh, and, and get her back on the water knowing there's no water inside the hull at all. So we saw her and we opened the, the, the trunk on the little chicken, the, well, the mighty chicken, the little VW Polo, and we filled it to the gunnels with equipment. Um, not so much that you couldn't close the hatch, but it was close. It was, <laughs> there certainly there was, you couldn't get anything else into the back half of the car. It was just us two in the front with uh, little bits of hand luggage, and then uh, all the back of the boat filled up with things. And um, 200 kilos, We I can tell you what it was, because later on, <laughs> it became very important. So we, um, we drove our way back. Indeed, we stopped back at Castillo and de Calahore and, uh, and saw the, uh, the inside of the castle, which was absolutely fantastic. You can get very few images of it online. It's owned by private individuals. I did discover that it was in a film in 1974, I believe, with um, David Essex called Stardust. And it's a, a, a story. I watched a bit of the film just so I could get extra views of the castle. And uh, it's about a, a, a band that makes it big in the 60s or 70s or something. And uh, David Essex, the lead singer, and he's a very kind of withdrawn um pop god kind of thing and he ends up in this castle in spain as his hideaway and it's it's this one so if you want to see what the inside of the castillo de calahore looks like you have to watch the film stardust from 1974 so um we saw that we stayed in the hotel we also then stopped off in seville which i can strongly recommend uh we passed through seville on the way there uh, but it was just literally going around the outside of the city on the on the um uh, the highway uh, on the way back we dove into town and then almost being silly like hey let's have a bit of a drive around we did start a drive around and we realized jeepers this place is amazing so we we, we uh, stopped for the night again unbelievably cheap to travel through spain and portugal really really amazing stay in this beautiful hotel in the middle of um, seville it was 45 euros for the night it was fantastic so uh, only for the night but enjoyed a little gazpacho a little wine and uh, then continued on our journey the next day and got back to Portamount and got back to Portamount to discover that nothing had changed. Well, I kind of knew that already, of course, because I've been on my phone and been staying in touch with it. But even by the time we got back to Portamount, which was like four days later, nothing had changed. Still backwards and forwards between the lawyers and that. And the lawyer came, you know, there's a lot more sort of twists and turns to this, but we're trying to keep it a little bit light and uh, non specific. But the lawyer in the end came to the point of like, if you start to say yes to the way this contract is written, you expose yourself to huge uh, risks, not only because of, um, you know, any element which is any sale of, you know, what is, as is, and where is, and, and you can go through and check all these things, you accept those kind of risks, but there was risk also based on the fact that a lot of boats, and you should be aware of this now, because I say it was like musical chairs, and everybody just stopped at the end of, um, uh, 2019 they put their boats wherever they put them and then 2020 we went into covid and a lot of things didn't move at all and longobard has definitely been caught up in that because um we need to get an exact 
clear understanding of the uh, VAT and tax uh, situation with any boat before we buy it. And she's in Europe. She's not registered in that country. And that means we totally need to understand the tax situation. The only way of uh, signing the contract was to basically just take on that liability without really understanding what it was if we wanted to move at the speed that we wanted to move at. The speed that was being uh, the speed that was being kind of um, defined by the fact that I had crew on the way. That's the other element in this, which is important to recognize is that, you know, we had to move a crew, crew enough to move a maxi, a crew enough to move a 70, 80 foot boat across an ocean, like eight people all coming from different places, all dealing with their own COVID situations and vaccinations and PCR tests and flights and all the rest of it. And no one really had moved or flown during COVID. So all the crew are kind of like, hey, how does this work? Um, and they're on their way. And we got down to um, we got down to the Friday. So I'd arrived on the Monday. This was now two weeks later, give or take, Monday to Friday, and then went over to uh, Alicante, and then we're back on the next Friday. And it got down to a point where I spoke to all the people that are involved in our like buying team, and they said, I have no idea how this is going to move forward. That was it. Like 10 o'clock at night is like, this, this just cannot go. And I'm like, jeepers, like... This means I'm going to lose the financing. This means I'm going to lose like the start on this project for the Veterans Around the World program. Um, everything I've put into this already, um, all up in smoke because the um, the uh, the whole the whole task, as you can imagine, was focused on this one thing of get a boat and bring it back. There wasn't really like a plan B to complete failure of of not having a boat. So I woke up on the Saturday morning and I got to say, I was in a bit of a daze. I was just, um, what are we going to do here? And I've often found this in my life. If you end up in a real crossroads of like, um, I don't really know what I'm doing right now. And, and, and how do I move forwards? It, we always say hindsight is twenty twenty. It's not possible to have hindsight until a later point. So the only way I ever found of insulating myself from, the curse of 2020 of saying, oh, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. The only way of insulating myself from that is to take a very long time to make a decision. It don't mean like weeks because that's where then it's become subconscious. You're not really making a decision and you're just kind of waiting to see if something else changes. But if you have to make a decision based on the information you've got at the time, if it's at C, you know, a lot of time might be three minutes. You know, they always, uh, one thing I learned from Sir Robert Knox Johnson, um, always make sure you light your emergency cigarette before the emergency starts because you can never find your lighter during the emergency. But having that cigarette, I'm not so prone to that anymore. I'm trying to get away from smoking. But that cigarette, it's about three minutes really to smoke a cigarette. It just gives you time to just do something which is not be engaged in the problem and give yourself some time to kind of see the arc of what is happening. I think it was a very wise bit of advice from, from Sir Robin. And um, although kind of, you know, uh, comedically presented and he's he's quite the card but it's um it, it's very true you've got to like have a moment to step back so if it's a bigger thing and it, you know it's not an emergency on deck you can spend seven hours on it no problem so I basically set off we were in Alvor which is just next to Portimao and uh, I went to a restaurant I didn't play on my phone I didn't watch videos I didn't do anything I just sat and think about it thought about it then went and got a massage the kind of massage that you'd be okay to you know tell your mother or wife about they just for relaxation just lie there okay cool this is what's going on then I went and had another meal then I sat on the beach and and I just kind of mulled around in activities which just gave me time to think I did not distract myself from this 
decision-making process. And if I found myself dragged away from it by what was going on around me, I changed my environment, I dragged myself back. So kind of like um, a very rudimentary form of meditation or, 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 or focused and directed thought. So that in the end, when that process is over, however long you take about it, you can always look back in la you know, later days when you look back and go, oh, I wish I'd known. And you can say to yourself, I made the best decision with the information I had at the time. And then that kind of like lets you off the, the hindsight 2020. You may well have made a terrible decision, but it was the only one you can make with the information you had in front of you. And so that's what I did. I spent the whole of Saturday, the daylight hours of Saturdays, basically deciding. And then it got down to about six, seven in the evening. It's getting dark. I went back to the apartment and found, uh, found Mike and, uh, we poured a couple of glasses of red wine. And I said to him, uh, we are going to buy a different boat in a different country and we're going to move ourselves there and it's going to all start tomorrow morning. And bless his cotton socks, he was like, okay, we're 100% supportive. He saw what I was trying to do. He understood the, the scale of what we were trying to achieve and the forces that were in play. And it's just, in the end, when something is so messed up that there's just no unpicking it, uh, sometimes you just got to dump things. Sometimes some things can't be fixed. I learned that lesson uh, about 10 years ago in a particular situation at sea. You just, sometimes some shit you can't fix. So move on to the next thing. And so, as I've said earlier, there were other boats on the list. And the two other boats on the list were a Grand Mistral 80, which was a 1997 boat uh, called Weddell, which I'd raced against many, many times in the Caribbean and all around the world, and uh, a beautiful boat, and uh, and Rothmans, the, the Maxi Rothmans, which was lying in Sweden. And I tried to make the best decision about which way to bounce. They're all in the same price bracket. The financing would cover it. The, the financier who I was working with was happy with this change in direction. I'd already kind of like uh, discussed this a little bit uh, earlier on, like, hey, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is the plan. This is like the shopping list for this project. Um, so he was he was behind me uh, 100%. And I he, he's asked to remain anonymous, so um, I'm not going to be uh, revealing his name. But uh, to that person who's out there, who's no doubt will be listening to this, what an absolute legend you are for standing by me. You saw the bigger picture, saw the veterans uh, proposal and that sailing project and what it can mean to hundreds of people who are affected by, by PTSD, who've been through terrible times, who are trying to get their lives back online. And he stuck with me, you stuck with me all the way through that. And uh, I really, really appreciate that. So <clears throat> when the call came in, um, hey, we're gonna change countries, he was 100% behind it, and off we went with his blessing. And basically what happened was uh, Sunday morning, we drove to um, we drove to the Decathlon store, which is where they sell uh, uh, outdoor equipment in Europe. Uh, I did some more videos and stuff. All of this has got videos. They'll be on Patreon the next couple of days. Um, we went to uh, Decathlon and bought as big as bags we could get hold of, which are like 100 liter bags. We started to decant all this stuff out of the back of the, the Mighty Chicken, the little VW Polo. And we ended up that we had, yeah, it was, let me get this right. It was six, it was six uh, bags at 23 kilos each. And then two bags that we had to send through DHL ground service. So it was 200 kilos of gear. And we moved most of it using a, um, a normal tickets on, a, on an easy jet flight. So we had uh, three bags each, which is the maximum you could take of 23 kilos each on an easy jet flight and uh, just maxed out our baggage allowance. And uh, the, the, the rule is though, it's gotta be within X, Y, Z dimensions and it's gotta be X, Y, Z weight, 23 kilos. So we then drove to um, uh, 
well, I'm missing out a few bits here, but uh, <clears throat> only to say that uh, trying to buy things from shops in a strong Catholic country on a Sunday afternoon is tricky. But <laughs> it can be can be done, but it was tricky. But we got to the airport. Um, we had pretty much everything we needed, but we, we couldn't get into shops to buy two more bags that we needed. So luckily, as we went into the airport, we found a bicycle box that someone had left there. And we were able to kind of make that into two boxes that we could then pack things into. And we went backs and forwards and backs and forwards to the scales. And, uh, and we got all the bags divided up so they're all exactly 23 kilos each. And we knew it was all good. We went and got a PCR test before we traveled. And then we stayed in the hotel for the night. And then the next day we flew to um, Paris uh, to go and have a look at the Grand Mistral 80 Weddell, which is the boat that I had selected to be the plan B after, after Longobarda fell through. I chose that boat because it's had its interior kind of changed anyway. So it's got um, a nice big galley, a, a more kind of like crossover cruising racing galley, nice big heads, got a shower, um, it's got a bigger central area, which um, uh, although it's had the furniture removed from the central area, it did have like a t two tables and some, some benches or something. It's very easy to put them back in and we'll probably put them back in a better arrangement than was there previously. Um, but uh, presented beautifully. And the great thing was, see, I knew the boat. That was the main thing. I already knew the boat. I've been on the boat. And while she's not invulnerable from little things wrong with her, um, the fact that I had seen her as recently as the last um, Heineken event in uh, March of 2020 filled me with some knowledge that I knew her. Rothmans was absolutely on the on the shopping list as well, if, 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 <laughs> if that's the best way to put it. But um, she is absolutely as she was designed in 89 she's a beautiful boat i think that we can do uh, a good job of um taking corporate guests and would-be sponsors for the veterans um proposal veterans um sailing campaign we can take people out on weddle and um and share with them uh, the love of sailing, but in a slightly softer environment than a full-on race boat. And, and that's an important stage right now. That had been something I was aware of with Longo, that we could do that kind of corporate um, uh, familiarization with the with the medium, with the platform. Um, we can do that with Weddell, uh, but she is also a full-on round-the-world race boat. She was designed for the Mistral race, and the Mistral race was due to go in 1997, the Whitbread race had kind of started coming to its end. Of course, it started in 73. Whitbread weren't interested to be involved so much anymore. And so in 97, there was like this opening perhaps for another kind of race. But the um, the uh, instigators of the Mistral race had perhaps slightly misread what was going on in sailing because importantly, in the 93 Whitbread race, the Whitbread 60s had been... Um, uh, created and suddenly by 97 the the maxi class was basically dead everyone realized wow 60 foot boats they go just as fast as maxis and that's why we've gone from whitbread 60s to volvo 60s to volvo 70s and then back to volvo 65s like 65 60 65 feet is exactly where you want to be at for ocean racing because it's the mean length of the bigger waves in the ocean so it's they're fast once they're up on the plane once they get over 12 knots they're planing they're lighter it's all good Okay, um, but the Mistrals were 
the last of the big Macs he's built. There were eight of them built in total. And my research to date, there's not very much about them online at all. And Weddle's the only one I've ever seen like up close. Um, they're long, they're fast, they're sleek. They're designed by um, Far. Is that correct? Not Ed Dubois. No, designed by the Far Design House. Um, built by um, Decision in Italy. A beautifully built, very strong carbon mast, and um, and Weddle's in great great shape. Or she she's uh, uh, certainly a known quantity for me. And I think a better halfway house than going straight to a full on race boat and then trying to take people out on that full on race boat and give them. Um, the the experience they need see if you're going to race around the world you need one particular kind of craft if you're going to take people out and kind of get them excited about offshore racing that's a little bit different and i've learned that with um with running challenger for a few years the the most common piece of um, feedback we would get is that people say this is great but it's too tough for a lot of my friends it's too tough for members of my family and really i'm only going to come one or two times there's a few diehards that'll uh, keep coming back um but uh, a little bit softer, a little bit somewhere to sit down, a table, a kind of bigger galley. These things just make it a bit easier. Whilst on deck, it's absolutely as it was built for racing. Just softening up that interior a little bit makes it so much easier to be able to um, tell a story of what it is that we want to do. We don't want people coming out for a couple of days with us and just struggling to survive and not really understanding the, the, the pleasure that can be gained from being out in the water and the potential um, beneficial uh, effect that sail training can have on those who are able to uh, engage in it. So Weddle was a great choice. Um, we got to uh, Paris. Um, the, the stuff all came through. Great. We went down into the, uh, the, the catacombs underneath the airport and discovered that uh, to hire a car to get out of Paris, to get to Cherbourg, where the boat was, uh, was going to cost uh, 328 euros, which is like the guts of 500 bucks to, um, because there's this worldwide shortage on rental cars. So I'm looking at Mike and Mike's putting this one on his credit card. I'm like, we just got to pay it. Just got to pay it because we've got this bigger thing we're trying to do, which is trying to, what we're actually trying to do, Mike, is we're trying to sail around the world with over a hundred veterans in the Ocean Globe race. So this car, this cost, we just have to suck it up. So we did, we drove it down to uh, Cherbourg, got to Cherbourg, <laughs> looked all around the marina, and the flipping boat wasn't there because the owner had moved it without telling anybody, including all the brokers. So they're all scrambling, trying to find out where's this boat, what's going on. So as the sun sets over Cherbourg, uh, we have now met up with two of our crew who have flown in, Xavier and Martin, flown in from Canada. And we have discovered that the boat is not there. <laughs> so it's like, oh, what can go wrong now? So we found out it was in Brest. Brest is about 500 kilometers down the road. So we take this little car. Luckily, we found out it's not $328 euros a, a day. It's only 100 euros after the initial cost of getting it out of Paris. So Martin and I drive down to Paris. Mike and Xavier um, come on the train. We've got all the bags in the back of the car. And uh, we get down to Brest. And Martin and I spent probably four hours looking around every marina in uh, in Brest. We got sent, finally, we went to the Capitanery and said, you know, where is the vessel Weddell? Oh, yeah, we've got it, no problem. We went to this marina. I said to Martin, I don't think it's in this marina, Martin. All these boats look too small. And I know he says, this is this where she says it is. So we duly walked down the dock and found a 24-foot boat <laughs> that was called Weddell, as opposed to the 25-meter vessel that we were looking for. So... Um, finally, that evening, as we went into Tuesday evening, the broker got in contact and said the boat had recently been um, 
chosen by the French Navy to be a new sail training vessel for them and they had wanted to buy it and they'd taken it over to their naval training school across the water from Brest which is a, you know, a kind of like closed compound to everybody else and nowhere near Brest really not by car um, and, but they were doing all their assessment and their survey and everything there but unfortunately due to political things within the French uh, Navy the funding wasn't available and yes indeed the boat was for sale but it was in um, it was in this uh, naval uh, college across the way and we could uh, we could maybe go and see it there. So, okay, no problem. So how are we going to get there? So the French Navy sent a rib with two uh, two drivers to, to come over and, uh, or two, two crew rather, to come over and pick us up, like a rigid raider basically, and drive us 15 minutes across the bay to get to where this boat was. And I, I've done enough time on rigid raiders to know you basically just... Get your waterproofs, you seal them right down around your head. Get a hold of that, um, get hold of the seat ahead of you, and you just ride it. Most of your weights on your on your legs. You're kind of sitting on the seat, and you just uh, don't bother about what's coming. Just deal with uh, whatever you feel coming through your legs, um, and just use it as an opportunity just to just calm down. Uh, you know, kind of think about what's coming next, uh, whether it's the task that you have to do next for the navy or going and looking at a boat. So. I really only opened up my waterproofs as we turned into the bay where this is. <laughs> I couldn't believe my eyes. This boat is this 80 foot, you know, gorgeous white yacht with this towering carbon fiber mast is tied up alongside two 1960s destroyers, which are being used by the naval uh, school there as a breakwater. They've got them chained in position to make a break. Is there two of them, three of them? Maybe three of them. They've got big chains, big anchors out, and these things are just held in place to basically break the waves so they don't hit the school. Brilliant use of materials. It's kind of a recycling. Love it. Seagulls love it as well. About 10,000 of them. Uh, and this boat's tied up alongside them, and the bloody boat from prow to, to to stern was covered in seagull crap like covered and i have to say now uh, mike was with me xavier was with me martin was with me i was there and those guys were absolutely brilliant if any of them are listening to this thank you so much for your spirit and for your positivity and for your hard work because for the next four hours basically they worked their tails off and scrubbed the decks totally clear of this thing using one hand brush and one deck brush and one bucket that they tied a rope to and dropped it. So with seawater only, I think it was, don't think there was any soap. They got this all off. We tied everything up. I went through the boat from stem to stern and took everything uh, and put it away because what had happened was that like all the boats in this industry, everything had ground to a stop uh, early 2020 and the boat hadn't been years for a year and a half and the owner himself had not been on board. He just had a couple of... Um, uh, delivery skippers move it from one place to another when the when the French uh, Navy were interested to buy it. So it was a mess inside. And uh, we worked our tails off for four hours to be able to get to a point where I could do a quick walkthrough on the video and pictures and present it to our financier and say, hey, this is what we're going for. Do you approve? Is this where you're at? Yes, indeed. I'd like to thank that point Bernard Gallet Brokerage, who are fantastic 
super professional um, uh, brokerage. I was very happy to hear that I'd actually met Bernard Gallet um, at the beginning of the Velux race in um, in 2010. He came down for that. Uh, he still remembered me, which was uh, very flattering. Thank you very much, Bernard, if you ever listen to this. And uh, he was willing to jump into the task of how quickly can we buy this boat? Because we basically had the rest of the crew arriving. This now was Wednesday. We saw the boat. Um, we had the rest of the crew arriving in the next couple of days and for the weather window and for everybody's calendars, you know, they should have been joining us when we were two weeks into the Longobarda project and instead they're joining us at the beginning of the Weddell project. And so um, he said, we'll do whatever we can. So they did. So that was Wednesday. Thursday, everybody was doing a lot of admin and on Wednesday, bless him, the owner of Weddell, um, Afanasi, uh, the, the Russian owner, um, he drove his motorcycle from the UK onto the ferry, down through France, came down, got there at like half eight in the morning, got taken over to uh, Weddell on this other side of this bay, took my crew with him. Um, at that point, I decided not to go because I don't think it's a very good idea when you've got two captains, one of them's trying to sell, one of them's trying to buy. And I just feel like it's best to just be zen and remove yourself from that equation. Here's, here's a crew. They can do what you ask them to do as long as it's reasonable. Um, you bring the boat, you park it alongside the dock, and then we'll talk about the sail. Not that I'm going to come with you and help move the boat. And then, like, <laughs> what happens if I don't get the fender in in time and we dent the boat? Or what happens if, you know, like, it's just, just avoid it. So um, there's a nice uh, bit of video which I did, which is me talking about all of this stuff and what had been happening. And then as I'm talking, this boat hoves into sight behind me. That's going on to Patreon in the next uh, couple of days. I tell the story as well. And she arrived finally at the uh, Chateau Marina in, uh, in Brest, pulled up alongside. And lo and behold, if she's not pulling up directly in front of Adrienne, which is the aluminum 85-foot custom-built sloop, which Jean-Luc Vandenheed built for his successful West About the World project, um, which is the thing that I'm still working towards. More about that uh, coming soon, um, about the West About project. A uh, few few changes there. But um, So we've got an Open 60. We've got Adrienne. We've got this beautiful boat that's just turned up Weddell. We've got all these beautiful boats sitting there. And thank goodness it wasn't looking too bad by that point. We'd taken all the seagull crap off. And the, the owner jumped down. Uh, we shook hands, introduced ourselves. I met him fleetingly during the things going around the world, but I normally met his um, his charter captains. And uh, between the boat and the cafe, we worked out the deal and I made him an offer uh, based on the, some of the things I'd learned about the boat. He accepted it. We did the paperwork right there at the restaurant and then he put on his bike helmet and rode away. It was absolutely legendary. And he said, yep, no problem at all. Jump on board, start doing whatever you want to doing and uh, let's let's make this happen. So that was Friday. So we saw the boat first for, on Wednesday and we had the boat on Friday. And then, well, I'll skip a little bit ahead because let me tell you, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, by Wednesday, we were alongside the fuel dock waiting for the insurance to come through uh, with everything ready to go, having completely re-kitted the boat out. Um, and uh, everything was in place with all of the finances, all of the legal stuff, everything, all thanks to um, Eugene Samarin, our lawyer in, in Annapolis, whose company were absolutely fantastic, with Bernard Gallet and his uh, brokerage, and with my um, uh, financier, who's, uh, say, anonymous, but very, very, very key in what's happening here. And suddenly, we had gone from near disaster caused by just 
crazy admin in, in Portugal, a big decision, a big change, and suddenly we were in France and we had this boat and um, we, we set to. I don't, I'll tell the story up to the bit where we leave the dock. I think that's, you know, the crossing the Atlantic is, an, is another story. We do that another day. But um, basically, I had the entire crew now. We're up to that point. We then had, who else had joined us? I think Yannick had joined us and Stefan had joined us and Javier had joined us. So we're at this point, we're up to seven people in total. And I said to them, go and get everything from every locker everywhere on this boat and bring it to the central like saloon, saloon area. And then what we're going to do is you can use my brain as the kind of difference engine here that's going to make all the judgments because it's impossible to ask people who don't know this kind of boat, who don't know this kind of sailing, who don't know my systems, who don't know the, the budget or what's in the chandlery. Obviously, I'd already been to the chandlery and had learned the inventory of the chandlery, which is something I like to do whenever I go to a new boating area. Went up to U-Ship, just walked every aisle and just let it all sink in so I knew what they had and didn't have. And then uh, went to the hardware store and went to like the equipment, French equipment of Home Depot and just like, hey, I know whatever everything's got and where everything is what everything costs and then just stand there in the salon and they just made a huge pile of everything that was in every cupboard throughout the boat and then someone would pick something up i'd tell them what it was for their own education and for what they you know so they knew and either we're throwing it away or we're putting it in this pile or whatever and in one hour and 30 minutes we went through every single stick of anything that was on that boat and it was either staying or going and basically is does this look like it's part of the kit of a super yacht. It's rusted and frayed and crap. We're just throwing it away because apart from a few key items, which you just have to put up with how they are because they're very expensive. Um, most of it was just kind of chaff and, and dust. It was just nothing useful. It's just like the, the remnants of what it had been. I think the owner had already taken a lot of the good stuff off when he was, you know, finished up with his charter season. So um, we, got everything off the boat and then we set to and cleaned every locker and every nook and every canny and the uh, cranny and the the bilges mike and stefan did a fantastic job in there and uh, xavier and yannick did a fantastic job in the um the heads and um uh, and, and the galley area and then uh, uh, Javier and I we went through electronics it was an issue with the autopilot we identified what was wrong with that and uh, started to make a plan with that and by the end of just two days we had a very clean very tidy great looking boat went on deck and did much more cleaning there and then went to the chandlery and using funds that are made available as part of this project um, we went and bought a whole new um, inventory of stuff for the boat made sure all the safety gear was right we were very lucky that the life rafts were still in um, in service and still uh, inspected so we didn't have to replace those I think that would have been pushing the budget to do that but um, yeah by by day seven if we saw the boat first on a Wednesday covered in seagull poo Friday we had a deal in place <clears throat> by Tuesday I think the boat was kind of like ours on paper most of the money transferred hands and by Wednesday we were at the fuel dock at about six in the evening with the boat ready to go, with the crew ready to go, safety briefings done, and we were sitting there putting fuel on board. And as we put the last hundred liters of fuel in, we got the phone call that um, the, we've been waiting for, which set the insurance in place. So we were able to drive out that evening from the dock. It was actually Xavier. I was like, hey, you know, we could just wait till tomorrow morning. He's like, let's go. Let's just go. And it was, Xavier, it was a brilliant decision. <laughs> we went out and it was flat and it was calm and we just motored. We had 550 liters of fuel on board and um, we had already a, a weather forecast which said we we're gonna need to do four days of motoring as it was, it was only like a day and a half. But um, so we, we, we tanked up with fuel, we had some extra jerry cans on board and we just set off. And it was the wildest thing to kind of go from seven months of trying to get Longobarda uh, in, in, the, in the, the, the straits and get her, get her ready to go. And then 
coming to a crux where it's like, what is the overall kind of thing that I'm aiming for here? What's the, what are we doing this for? Are we, are we in Portugal to buy Longabada? Or, you know, if that was the case, then you've got to just keep grinding away and grinding away at the deal and, and work something out. But I realize that's not what's going on here at all. We're trying to, we're, the, the thing that we're trying to work for is much higher up the hierarchy here. We're trying to get hundreds of veterans to get on board the boat. And I, I should clarify that as I go. Hundreds of veterans. Um, the, the, the deal that we're trying to work towards here is that each boat will have 20 people on board, which is a normal complement for these boats. Three crew, 17 people. And of those 17, we think six will be around the world. So we've got a real core of people that know what's going on. We'll have um, up to three watches. Um, so um, we can... Um, I've taken advantage of that in the past. And I find it to be very, very beneficial. But if things start to get heavy, you can then go to two watches. And then if things like last minutes of a race and you need to get as much weight on the rail, you can go to mega watch and have everybody on watch for, you know, and I've always been uh, able to, to, to get what I need out of changing watch systems around. But with 20 people on board, six who are going all the way around the world, whose skills are just getting deeper and deeper and stronger and stronger all the way. Um, three, pardon me, three um, pro crew, um, who are able to each of them lead a, lead a watch and, and take control of the vessel if they need to legally. And then that leaves that, that core nine, you've then got 11 people on board who are uh, there to do a leg each. So they can, there's four legs around the world in the Ocean Globe race. So there's 44 people there. And then there's the six, you've got 50 people per, per boat um, going uh, around the world. Two boats, 100 people. Um, they're going to get, uh, let me see, there's two weeks training per year. So we've got a month of training uh, before they leave, plus a minimum of a month at sea for those. So that's 60 days that they're going to be in contact, plus this um, online training thing, which is going to take like 20 days to complete. And there's exams and all sorts of stuff in it. Um, th this is going to be like I think it ends up working out there's about 80 days of contact in this uh, in this project for each of the people that come through. We're also going to open it up. There's people that want to help with maintenance and refit periods and anything else, designing T-shirts, the sale designs, like as many people as possible based around this with the idea being to really create a, the thing about military um, uh, uh, vets and first responder vets. And, and I should say here, you know, it's not just military vets we're talking about here. We're talking about first responder vets. And someone was also talking to me about owning up to um, veterans of the medical professions who have just been through COVID, many of whom are also beset by PTSD, you know, from what they've been through and what they're still going through. So being at sea is a fantastic way to rebuild confidence and to rebuild your communication skills with yourself, with people around you, and to really feel that you're achieving something by, you know, taking this vessel and, and getting this thing done, uh, whether it's a one leg or the whole thing around the world. But for military and first responder veterans particularly, they're very mission-orientated individuals. And it's great doing therapy and it's great um, learning more about your emotions and your psychology and but at the end of the day they're, they're people for whom sometimes putting them in a situation letting that situation speak for themselves or speak for itself is is the best way to do it because they're smart hard skill people who are um, very tactically aware can often be suffering from also like hypervigilance where they're just hypervigilant in their everyday life as a kind of side effect of PTSD you can try and talk them out of it or you can kind of put them in an environment where it's kind of useful you know and then you can kind of like wean them back off it at the end of the voyage but um, my experience of doing sail training with people with PTSD my experience of doing sail training as a whole has shown that it's a fantastic platform for people to to 
create meaningful change in their life and that's what it is we want to get people back communicating and uh, integrated back into their family groups from whom they're feeling a little estranged we want people back in their friendship groups in their social groups and not feeling like outliers the the things that people have had to go and do in the service of their country whether you agree with what a military does or not um, we have to understand the people that go and get involved in it have the 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 best interest of the community they live in uppermost in their minds and then they just get kind of raggedly beaten through that period mentally emotionally physically um but they put up with it and they they deal with it and they excel in it uh, because they have those high objectives in mind when they then come back to everyday life there is a lasting epitaph to that and i think that it was um the likes of wilfred owen and and uh, rudyard kipling who were first accused of like opening the can of worms that was war in fact i believe that wilfred owen's work was not even allowed into the oxford book of poetry for decades um because who was it, it was someone like keats said that um all of his poetry was all spilled milk and sucked sugar stick or something that you basically shouldn't be saying that stuff about war. You just kind of keep it quiet. You know, it's what we do behind the scenes. And then, you know, we kind of get on with our everyday life, which obviously utter tosh because the, 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 the psychological effects of being in the kind of situations that any uh, soldier uh, will, will go into is very long term in, in someone's life. So for me, this veterans um, project is bringing together my love of sail training, my love of this kind of ocean um, passage making, my belief that um, a, a mission orientated task like this can be incredibly uh, therapeutic for people. And the benefit is that, yeah, we've, we've got one boat on the stocks now. We have an option on Rothmans. Now I have another set of financing, financing which is only going towards this boat, is not going to anything else. Obviously, as I, I put a letter around for all of the people on our uh, email list uh, a month or so ago now, just explaining exactly how Spartan has come out of COVID, which is we are not turning up to 2022 in a tux with a glass of champagne, Spartan is like staggering out of the uh, wreckage of 2020. There's a lot there that we still need to um, get over and deal with. But the only way to move forward is to try and do something which is then going to get the company back on its feet financially and, uh, and, and get new projects happening. And this is the best way I see of doing it. It also will allow me perhaps to step towards a goal I thought I was going to achieve in 2020 before everything went kind of haywire with covid which i wanted to make spawn into a, an accredited out of bound school which is my dream from the the very very start with all this so the veterans proposal the maxis um the this online seamanship training thing it's all part of the same big plan to move forward and provide uh, the very best support we can for those who need it so getting weddle off the dock um, was the summation of a, a series of decisions of like why are we here what are we trying to achieve and then realizing when we got to a dead end with longer bar that okay we've got to go in a new direction so um that's what i was feeling as i as i pulled off from the dock it's actually a piece of video i didn't get i was um i was chatting to uh, uh, my partner online at the time with uh, with uh, whatsapp and was able to show her hey this is what's happening and this is us leaving the dock i didn't video which is a bit of pity but you can imagine there was huge elation from the crew they in their own way had joined the project mike had obviously been there right from the start and knew what it was all about xavier and uh, martin had joined at the bit where we couldn't find the boat and everybody else had 
joined later on, but they worked their socks off to make that happen. And to, to Yannick, to Xavier, to Javier, to Stefan, to Martin, to Mike, and to Simon, who joined us towards the end, thank you so much for all the effort you did because a lot of them came for a non-commercial, non-charter, just a delivery of a boat, and they ended up working so hard, uh, both on the boat and going, getting equipment and everything, and made it all possible. So departing the dock in, um, in Brest was the uh, finish of a huge amount of uh, work to, to started really uh, when I left the door in uh, in Nova Scotia and then I guess in the next podcast I'll tell you about the the transatlantic and uh, and fill you in on how this kind of situation is developing it's all kind of a little bit uh, fluid at the moment um, I arrived back safely <laughs> there's no problem there Weddle is sitting out here I will I will throw something out to you though I'm thinking about changing her name she was um, all the boats of this class are all named after things uh, down in the southern ocean because it was going to be around the world race I think there's one called Ushuaia uh, Weddle I think there's another one called Ross which is all different seas and, and kind of um, peninsulas and, and ports and things in the southern ocean but um that doesn't really mean much to us and i've got to say that when i say the word weddle to people it's it's uh it's a funny word that they're kind of like sorry what's that what's that word you're saying to me now we could call it like james weddle who's the actual person it's named after who discovered the the weddle sea but um in this area in nova scotia where where i am there's a lot of ospreys and uh, we have a boat called Falcon already, and it was called Falcon because it's the middle name of Robert Falcon Scott, my favorite Arctic explorer, a very misunderstood uh, person whose uh, true story was only really revealed by um, Ranulph Fiennes in the end on his book about Scott of the Antarctic, who explained what a genius Scott was and how badly he'd been misrepresented for 100 years. And also, of course, the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> so Falcon is called Falcon because of those things in my life. But I thought, well, can we name another one after a bird? Like, can we have osprey? Because there's heaps of ospreys like around the house here. Big white and brown and black birds. Maybe we can do that. So um, any ideas for the names? Now, I, I shudder to put um, the, uh, the thought out there. Are you aware of the fact that um, in the British press, the, the Royal British Navy, the, uh, they put out there that they were going to have a competition for names for boats uh, for their new icebreaker. And um, by overwhelming majority, the name that was chosen was Boaty McBoatface. Um, so I, I do shudder to put the idea out there of, of names. But um, Osprey's there, James Weddle. I did want to have things that were like somewhat inspiring. You know, if you're going to set off around the world in a boat and um, I, I, I got offered... I got offered full money for two campaigns previously in the past and had to turn it down. One of them, I was offered um, my full Velux budget by um, Imperial Tobacco, which just on a moral basis is like, no, I'm sorry, that's not gonna, that's not gonna happen. I'm not, I'm not helping to underwrite, um, you know, the story that cigarettes are good. Um, the other one was uh, uh, <laughs> someone said, oh, there's a Chinese property company are really interested to sponsor you full amount. Like, oh, my God, this is it. It's happening. You know? Yeah, they were called Wanko. W-A-N-K-O. <laughs> so I had to turn them down based on the fact that I just was not going to be driving around the world in a boat with Wanko written on the side of it. Um, I'm very, I'm very shallow with these things. But uh yeah, if you're going to settle around the world in the boat, I think having something that you can kind of like get behind a little bit is uh, is cool. I struggle then to think about what we're going to call the next one. Like, do we think of another bird or we do, do we do them in pairs or 
I'm not really sure how that goes. But the other boat that potentially will be coming as well is Rothmans, which uh, is interesting. I, I put that out to you as well. Like um, Rothmans, it's, it's, they're actually called Rothmans Benson Hedges. They bought them. And I was looking at their um, the information online here in Canada. They are actually behind having a non-smoking Canada by like 2030 or something. Their whole business plan, they've obviously twigged, cigarettes are out what's next they're doing things with e-cigarettes doing things with like vape type things but they are like trying to get out of it as fast as humanly possible now the late 90s were it's a very different time so boats are often um, sponsored and all sorts of sports are sponsored by cigarettes this boat is rothman's you can't like change its name you know if i change the open 60 which was called shaman uh, it's called shaman three then it was called union bank Privé. then it was called temenos then it was called uh spirit of yukoa then it was called hellcat then it, now it's called F doesn't matter like you know it, it's not a big deal but rothman's is rothman's and rothman's was always rothman's and she was a big deal in the whip bread race and she's a big deal now can't really change the name so i was wondering uh what's the moral kind of compass on going to rbh which is rothman's benson hedges and saying to them you know, hey, are you going to sponsor these veterans going around the world? Like, we will we will help you to tell the story of uh, smoking is bad. We will help you to tell the story of get professional help if you can't stop smoking. We will help to tell the story of use products XYZ to help you get off smoking. But we're not helping you with anything along the lines of smoking is good. If they're willing to get into that, that could be quite interesting. But um, are they still a cigarette company? I don't know. Interesting. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts and opinions on that so anyway so that's the story of where we're up to at the moment um the 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 basic roadmap at the moment is we have got the website for spartan offline at the moment i'm told that a version of it will be ready to go up tomorrow which will have everything there that's going to be all the stuff for 2022 2023 it's going to have everything about joining the ocean globe race obviously round the world or individual legs um, we are just taking the overall cost which is at market price it's the same price as doing the clipper race but it's going to be on a maxi it's uh international uh rules of sailing and nothing else um it's teams of 20 the skippers of the boats are going to be only people who have raced around the world before. And tentatively at the moment, I have Marcus Charlton Brown uh, saying that he will skipper the boat um, Weddell slash Osprey around the world. Marcus, if he indeed is going to come on board with this, is such an unbelievably good skipper. Um, he was, uh, I knew him already from working in Hong Kong in the early 2000s. And then he was going off at that point then to uh, join the Clipper race as the skipper of Qingdao and go around the world. He kind of opened my eyes to what Clipper was. And it was actually the next edition of the race. I was skipper of Qingdao. Um, and uh, he came fourth in the race overall. I came sixth in the race overall. He's much more of a, a hard pusher uh, and racer than I am. Um, fantastic guy. And I think the key thing being he has raced around the world already. He has hundreds of thousands of miles of experience. It's not an unknown quantity. I want to have it that whoever skippers these boats, everybody getting on board knows who they're going with. And that person on board knows where they're going rather than it being new folks. I remember when I joined Clipper, that was a very big responsibility, almost crushing to have that on my shoulders that uh, it was my first time going around the world and I was leading people doing it. Um, so uh, Marcus, perhaps on board this boat, Weddle slash uh, whatever we're going to call it, not Boaty McBoatface. And, um, and then two others, which also again is, is uh, something I'm, I'm saying so that we can have 
three watch leaders and then there's going to be six round the welders which then means you've got two people who are on the crew who've got a lot of experience with the boat and then a watch leader um, and then everybody can kind of cycle through because the other thing we're looking for on this is that we're going to try and make it that um, uh, physical um, uh, disabilities are not limitations on this we've talked to a lot of different uh, organizations um, dealing with veterans and dealing with the disabled uh, sailing community in general and the word is very clear is that basically people want to get on board the boats and the limitation is often imposed by the owners and operators of the boats I'm saying if it's safe, if it's provably safe, if we have all safety measures in place and you're able to get on board, um, let's do it. I had a wonderful conversation with a, a disabled sailor who has uh, had both legs amputated below the knees and his ability to move and shift on the deck. As I said to him, like, you know, how does this go down in heavy seas? He said, well, what do you do when it's really heavy seas? You get on your bum, you get on the deck. It's like, I'm already here. Like, uh, I know what I'm doing. I know how my body reacts to, you know, the, the, the movement of the boat and the things I'm doing with it. And, uh, if we can make it that these people can go and, and also engage in this uh, challenge and can, and can be part of a team and I'm all for it. So I'm, I'm like, I'm looking for boats that can, that can allow that to happen. I love that Weddell's got all these kind of like big tow rails and big handles on deck and um, the, the companion way we think is is modifiable so that we can get in and out that way with uh, with people with um, amputations like I'm keen that everybody gets to go as long as it's safe uh, we, we will we will make that happen so we've got the equipment in place the proposal is out there we'll be putting that probably on the website as well so you can have a look at it the website will go live in the next couple of days obviously I'm a little bit at the um, behest of the the designers and the team that are doing that um, but we've got the Newport Bermuda race coming up we've got the Regatta del Sol al Sol we've got voyages between those which we'll be using for training and then we're going to do a transatlantic each year basically we're going to do a transatlantic straight from Newfoundland to the UK our Marconi event that we've always done 2,000 miles across the Atlantic but then instead of coming back via the south and going to the Caribbean and doing all that stuff, we're in the same year, we're going to cross with the Marconi and then we're going to go up to Norway, to the Faroe Islands, to Iceland, to Greenland, Newfoundland and be back. So we're actually only away from Nova Scotia for like two months. We'll do a transat. We'll do these other things in the northern um, northern climes of the Atlantic, which seem to be a lot. Um, I think they're a lot more popular with people. And I want to get away from racing the boats all the time. And I, I'm going to do that from the point of view as a business owner, because the amount of damage that we suffer um, trying to race these boats at you know the best fraction of full speed that we can muster with with um, trainee crews on board. It's not fair on the crew when they make a mistake and then something really big gets damaged when they're just, it's just a side effect of them learning. The side effects of them learning shouldn't be massive damage that they feel bad about. It certainly shouldn't be shouting and, and or anything getting, uh, anyone getting injured or anything like that. We've got to keep it calm. So uh, we're, I'm going to steer clear of uh, more of the racing that Spartan's done in the past and more focus on personal development and exploratory things where we're off, you know, like Iceland, Greenland, Fairlands, it sounds flipping amazing to me but um we've got to make good on promises that were made in 2020 for the newport bermuda race and for the mexico flyer and for the regatta del sol al sol so we'll be doing those but then as we move into 2023 it'll just be training so we'll have the online training thing we'll have all the stuff that spartan will be doing and then hopefully we'll have challenger and and um and falcon and we'll have a uh, weddell slash osprey and if we can get her rothman so that we'll be able to get the uh uh 
people on board who have the funds who want to put it into veteran development and into these uh, these kind of courses and they can see that we've got the equipment we've got the knowledge we've got the 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 um, operating procedures and we've got the the safety that we can put these two boats on the water with veterans on board and give them and the wider vicarious veteran community something really fantastic to hold on to in 2023. So I'm super excited. I hope that this helps to explain somewhat what's been going on. It does explain why there was a longer barter tour video <laughs> on the YouTube channel and then like nothing happened. You'll find the next couple of days we've got a uh, Weddell tour video, me talking about the boat going on. We've also got um, gear reviews for man overboard devices such as the AIS beacons and the EPUB beacons. We've got life jacket reviews coming. We've got um, a torpedo, the electric outboard review coming, plus the seamanship videos, which are gonna be over on Patreon. If you want early access to the review videos and the uh, vlogs, go over to Patreon. It's about 20 bucks a month. Uh, get involved there and you can see all this thing early. And um, join what's going on and if anybody has any great connections to anybody anywhere that's involved in um you know fundraising for veterans please get in contact because um i'm going hell for leather on this i believe fully that this can work i believe it's gonna be great and um, i'm putting everything into it and uh, it's good that doing this also is exactly in alignment with spartan digging its way out of the the hole that 2020 created and uh, and moving towards being out of bound school so i see a lot of good things there and um, i'm excited to be able to share it with you as we go along the way so um the next what i'll do is the next podcast will be e E is for, now I've got two options here. I've got E is for engines, which I was kind of excited to do, but I think what I'm going to do is E is for entropy because <laughs> I'm trying to make this first round of this ABC of sailing a little bit like weird things. You know, we had like D is for damage and uh, B is for boating and A is for anchoring. I think we want to start with the widest possible uh, selection. So entropy is the system by which things break down in the universe and become lesser components of what they were before. And all boats at all times, in all ways, are subject to entropy. And if you um, if you listen to my friend Alan Creaser, uh, boats are just trying to sink. They spend 24 hours a day trying to get to the bottom of the ocean, and we got to spend eight hours a day making sure they don't get there. Um, entropy is the uh, the enemy of, of sailors. And it's why we have to clean things. It's why we have to maintain things. It's why things fail. Um, and, and understanding some of those processes and uh, the whole point of the ABC of sailing is that we just basically open up the top of my flip top head and I just shoot from the hip and tell you what I know on that subject. And then you get an idea of like, well, what is it that a professional is meant to know? So that's, I'm going to talk about what I know about why we go through the very particular procedures we go through to help boats not just decay and rot and dissolve into their component elements it's a bit of a kind of it's a bit of a wide field kind of like idea to, to present as an e is for but i think um i think it changes your perspective on cleaning and it changes your perspective on preventative maintenance once you've heard perhaps some of the things i've got to say so let's let's give it a go we'll come back to engines at another time i think we'll maybe do like i started trying to record the podcast and it was almost impossible we were talking about um inboard diesel outboard gasoline two-stroke diesels inboard gasoline you know it's like hang on is how does this all fit into one podcast so i like to rattle on but i don't like to rattle on that much so you're getting ease for entropy and you'll like it by jolly so <laughs> that's next but um 
Thanks for listening to the story this time. I hope that that uh, uh, opened up what uh, happened to you. I hope that you agree with the the choice I made. Please feel free to to comment and interact with uh, with this uh, podcast. You can seek us out, obviously, at the SpartanOceanRacing.com webpage. We do have a new uh, CSM The Mariner website coming soon. There are some rules changing within the uh, Google search engine, which requires podcasts to have their own web page. And we thought that's a great time to start to get that all in one place, separated from Spartan as two different things that you can interact with. Um, but if you want to um, hook up with us on Twitter, you'll find us there as Spartan RT. Um, or of course, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram as Spartan Ocean Racing for now. So if you want to email me, it's csmthemariner at gmail.com. Very interested to hear your views on getting sponsorship from various companies for the veterans sailing around the world campaign and uh, and what we should call the boat but um yeah i shall leave you with my uh my common uh sign off which ended up having a lot more meaning for me with this situation you know i always say uh i hope that you're safe and sound because that always comes from my logbook you know being able to get to the end of a voyage and write vessel sound crew safe is the finest point of a, of a skipper's day to be able to get there and say you did it as you meant to do it but um, it had a lot more meaning when uh, we were finally got back here to Nova Scotia with a boat, with a safe crew, having uh, had a good voyage, which we'll talk about in the next one, um, and being able to write safe and sound. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and keeping those around you safe and sound and um, looking forward to the fantastic opportunities to go sailing, which should be presented now. COVID lockdown is breaking. So... I look forward to hearing from you and uh, I will speak to you in the next one. Cheers.